Tarzan wasn't a ladies' man. He'd just come along and scoop 'em up under his arm like that. Quick as a cat in the jungle. But Clark Kent, now there was a real gent. He would not be caught sitting around in no jungle scheme, dumb as an ape doing nothing. Superman never made any money, saving the world from Solomon Grundy. Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 66 where we go back to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. This is part four of our Death of Superman series looking at the uh, 25th anniversary of the Death of Superman and this one's all about Reign of the Superman part two and the after party. Mm -hmm. Uh, What happened to all the characters later on. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and from beyond the eternal curtain of death. Uh, we have a few new creators here because we are juggling a lot of issues, right, Chris? There are. Yes, sir. We are talking about many, a many a comic book. We are going to go through all of the issues included in the return of Superman, including all of the new Superman that uh, you know, arrived last uh, episode and all that. So uh, let's just dive right into it and talk about some of these guys in brief, because, boy, there are a lot of them. Uh, we got Gerard Jones, born July 10th, 1957, in Cutbank, Montana. From 1983 to 1988, Jones was a regular contributor to National Lampoon magazine. He wrote the comic book Heroes from the Silver Age to the Present for Crown Publishing in 1985. And he wrote Green Lantern Mosaic from June 1992 to, to November of 1993. Lasted 18 issues, primarily drawn by Kali Hamner. This was uh, cities from around the galaxy uprooted and stuck on Oa. And then they have to deal with each other. It was sort of mm-hmm. an interesting story arc. And uh, the series was canceled prematurely, as we have, I think we have discussed this in other episodes. Last, day, last episode, yeah. Oh, okay, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and then he wrote for Superman's Comeback Trail. Here we are. <laughs> yes, he was the uh, Green Lantern writer, and uh, we're going to be talking a Green Lantern issue oh, yeah. here. Uh, on the other side of the table, we have M.D. Bright. This is Mark D. Doc Bright. He was born in 1955. He grew up in Montclair, New Jersey, receiving a BFA from the, the Pratt Institute in 1974. His work in comics began in 1978 with a three-page story in House of Mystery number 257, his April 78 cover date. His first regular work was providing the art for the Falcon miniseries for Marvel. There's four issues from November 1983 to February 1984. Uh, his major running comics series include Solo Avengers, Iron Man, G.I. Joe, Green Lantern, and Action Comics. And I know him from uh, Quantum and Woody. Uh, <laughs> and he also threw in on the Green Lantern book we'll be discussing a little bit later on. Now we're talking about Lee Motor. He's a fellow that lives in Pittsburgh and draws comics and variant covers sometimes. Not a ton of information about him nope. floating on the internet. <laughs> However, we do know that he broke into the industry not long before the Superman death business happened. His first published work was Legion, L-E-G-I-O-N, uh, number 38. That was April 92, cover date. Then he did Arrow number one, October 92. 
Wonder Woman 72 and 73, that was March and April 1993. And then, of course, Newstime number 1, May 1993, The Life and Death of the Man of Steel. And he would go on to co-create, along with Def John's Courtney Whitmore, who's the new Star-Spangled Kid, later known as Star Girl, which probably is his most known contribution. But uh, he's still, I would imagine so, He's yeah. still around out there somewhere. Now we're going to be talking about Jeff Loeb, who I, I always thought his name was Jeffrey, but it's not. It's, it's actually Joseph. Joseph, yeah. <laughs> uh, Joseph Jeff Loeb III was born January 29th, 1958 in Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, he began collecting comic books during the summer of 1970. He attended Columbia University and graduated with a Bachelor of Arts and a Master's Degree in Film. His first professional work was his collaboration with Matthew Wiseman in authoring the script for the movie Teen Wolf, and that came out in 1985. Loeb continued to script for uh, film and television throughout the 80s and was working on a script for The Flash as a feature with uh, Warner Brothers in 1989. Now, while that script deal did fall through, Loeb met with publisher Jeanette Kahn, who asked Loeb to write a comic for DC Comics. And so, his first comic work was Challenges of the Unknown, Volume 2, Issues 1 through 8. This is May through October 1991. And this was this would be the first of his many collaborations with artist Tim Sale. Uh, he also contributed the Challenges of the Unknown bio for Who's Who in the DC Universe Number 1. This was the August 1990 edition. Uh, with Tim Sale, he wrote Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween special, December 1993. And he co-wrote a story for Action Comics that we will be discussing shortly. And I, I don't know much more about this guy. Did he do anything in comics after this? I don't know. Maybe, maybe might have done a couple of things here and there. Maybe. And maybe worked in television a little bit, but I think he's pretty much living under a bridge by now or something. I think so, yeah. Who, who could tell? Who knows? Uh, so, <laughs> Eddie Newell, he was born 1960-1957, possibly in Michigan, I think. Studied, studied visual communication at the Art Institute of Pittsburgh. His first published work was for The Twilight Zone, November 1990, for Now Comics. And that contributed to Hero Alliance number 15, May 1991, cover for Innovation Comics, which was a division of Now Comics, or an imprint, or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Lost in Space number 1, August 1991, cover, and the Lost in Space Annual, 1992, for Innovation. Green Hornet 3 and 4, November-December 1991, covers for Now Comics. Twilight Zone number one, and then Twilight Zone number five. These were anthologies, so he only contributed to these, uh, mm. Twilight Zone and a couple of the other ones. That was November 91 and March 1992, respectively. That was for Now Comics. And then Weird Tales Illustrated number one, January 1992, for Millennium Publications. And The Justice Machine number two, November 1992, for Comic Co. So you see, it really is like you're seeing a progression from things we've never heard of to wait now i'm starting to recognize yep. some of these publishers uh and and an issue of superman the man of steel that we'll discuss today he's best known i think for a run on black lightning from 1995 to 96 and yeah. he has stayed busy his whole life he he still does work now covers he's working on a graphic novel of his own right now of his own life yeah yeah it's uh he's he's not uh hurting for work and no, and he's he's a really good artist too. We can we can include his website in the show notes. He's a sure, yeah. he does a lot of really good black and white uh, work. It's some really uh, haunting faces. I looked at some of his like commission work, and it seemed to be all black and white, and it was really yeah. really good stuff. Certainly. Uh, next guy we're going to talk about Ed Hannigan. He was born August 6, nineteen fifty one, 
in America. Probably. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was cited as American, so we'll say so. Uh, now, his first credited work was as writer for Marvel's licensed Planet of the Apes. This is issue number five, February 1975 cover. Uh, he wrote and or drew issues of Marvel's Defenders from issues 67 through 91. This is January of 79 through January of 81. Uh, while drawing Spectacular Spider-Man, he co-created the characters Cloak and Dagger along with Bill Mantlo. Uh, over at DC, he gave Brainiac a bit of a facelift. That's right. He, yeah, he had a run drawing covers for Batman between 83 and 85. Didn't he create uh, that uh, Brainiac ship too, or no? He might have. I know that, that he, might have been the cybernetic Perez. one. Yeah. It might have been Perez, yeah, but he he did do the more cybernetic y uh, Brainiac. That was him, yeah. He's like the, the you know, robot skeleton. The robot yeah. one, yeah. Uh, now, he provided interior art for the for much of the first two years of the Mike Grell run on Green Arrow, which is where I know him from. Mm. Um, and then uh, jumping way ahead, in 2010, the Hero Initiative put out Ed Hannigan, colon, Covered, uh, where several comics creators pitched in to assist as a benefit to help cover medical expenses due to Ed's multiple sclerosis. Well, that's nice. Uh, last fellow we'll talk about in these bios is David Lapham. Born in 1970, Lapham began his professional career in 1990 at Valiant Comics. He would follow editor Jim Shooter to Defiant Comics, where they would co-create the Warriors of Plasm in 1993. And he's perhaps best known as the creator of Stray Bullets, an independent comic published under his own El Capitan books, which still comes out to this day. It does. Now, right into the comics here. We have Action Action Comics, issue 688. This is July 1993 cover date. An Eye for an Eye by Roger Stern and Jackson Geis. $1.50. It was triangle number 16 for the year 1993. Guy Gardner reads all about these strange new visitors, all claiming to be the Man of Steel, and decides to investigate. The Eradicator stops a bank robbery in brutal fashion by breaking the would-be robber's hands. Uh, Lois visits the robber in the hospital to follow up for a story and sees someone she believes for a moment to be Clark Kent. Inspector Henderson is promoted to commissioner of the Metropolis Police, and his first official act is to promote Maggie Sawyer to inspector and put her on this weird Superman case. Guy Gardner meets up with the Eradicator, and they beat the hell out of each other for a little while. Seems Guy likes the cut of this new Superman's jib. Uh, he gives him his full backing, which doesn't really sit well with the last son of Krypton. Mm. That's not the endorsement you want. No, well, some people might want it, but not a, not somebody <laughs> trying to be a hero. Uh, so then we got Superman, the Man of Steel, number twenty-three, July nineteen ninety-three, cover date. Ambushed by Louise Simonson and John Bogdanov. That's dollar fifty cover price. Seventeen triangle number seventeen of nineteen ninety-three. This is the Steel one, where Steel beats up some gangbangers armed with Toastmasters. Uh, you got to listen to the last issues to understand what that <laughs> sentence meant. But uh, uh, to, he's unable to learn the whereabouts of White Rabbit. A loose-lipped gang member is killed before he can spill the beans. Sure happens a lot, doesn't it? It's a common thing, it seems, in, uh, not just in comics, to movies and certain gangster <laughs> novels. Uh, Lex Luthor is able to procure footage from the fight and deduces that the loose-lipped gang member was about to say, Spire. So maybe she's at the Metro Spire Motel Hotel. That's good enough. Good a theory as any, I guess. You know, we're using the uh, old Adam West uh, Batman uh, deduction here. (laughs) Lois Lane watches a gang fight from a helicopter, hopeful to check in on Steel. And then Showboat Superboy arrives and attracts some gunfire. And some ladies. No, I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) Lois' helicopter is hit, and she bails out right into the waiting arms of Steel. 
She asks if Superman, and if he's Superman, he says that's not a claim he'd ever made. <laughs> you are wearing a big S on your chest, sir. Uh, after <laughs> setting her, settling her down, Steel lectures Superboy on acting a fool and tells him what he did caused a helicopter pilot his life. Lex Luthor Deuce informs Steel that White Rabbit is at the Metro Spire, then shares that intel and hopes that Steel might agree to be sponsored by WLEX. Iron says, no, nah, I don't think so. Nah. Uh, during the raid, Superboy winds up saving Steel's life, and Steel admits they're actually at, they're equally at fault in the helicopter pilot's death since John Henry created the Toastmaster to begin with. So, uh, Lois considers what she would what she should think about this new thing. Blah, blah. Lois considers what she should think about this new Man of Steel, and she feels as though he obviously looks the least like Superman, but appears to have his soul. Mm-hmm. Maybe he is a uh, visitor like the uh, psychic lady Could said. be, could be. Yeah. A body inhabitant or whatever right. it was. Now we're going to jump over to Superman Volume 2, Number 79, uh, also July 1993 cover. Prove it by Dan Jurgens for $1.50. Triangle Number 18 for 1993. Ron Troop, if you remember, he's the uh, fellow who's stepping in for uh, Clark while right. he's away. He travels to Washington, D.C. to find out if the cyborg Superman is the real steel deal. Before he's able to meet with the president, Karaki, that's Quiraki, mm-hmm. a terrorist attack. Uh, it's an assassination attempt on President Clinton. Uh, Cyborg arrives on the scene to take them out, and in so doing, he also triggers the White House defense system. Uh, so he fights the White House for a little while. Sure. Uh, via a retinal scanner, Cyborg is able to prove to Troop that he is the real deal. President Clinton personally thanks Cyborg and acknowledges him as the one and only true Superman. Perry White reads reads Troop's tripe and uh, realizes that he should have no problem filling Clark's shoes. You know, it's like, yeah, really, what have you done for us lately, Clark? Die? Sheesh, you know what I mean? Clark who? You know, whatever. (laughs) This is a a newspaper biz. Now, amazingly, Mm -hmm. because of the time that it hit, uh, there was a uh, crossover, a a annual event that happened during the fifth week in uh, this year called Bloodlines. Uh, We've actually talked about this. A few times. A few times in our, in our time. And this is sort of the uh, series that uh, brought Chris and I myself together. It is. But just because it, Superman's got his own problems doesn't mean he doesn't have to deal also with what's going on in Bloodline. So we'll talk about the issues that touch there. It was Superman, the Man of Steel, Annual Number 2, Cutting Edge by Louise Simonson and Eddie Newell, uh, introducing Thomas Edge O'Brien, friend of John Henry Irons. His body becomes covered with spikes. And that's about as lame as it sounds. It was pretty late, pretty weak. Yeah. Uh, Superman Volume 2 Annual Number 5, Myriad by Dan Jurgens and David Laffel. This reintroduces Sasha Myriad Green. This is Lex Luthor's karate trainer who he right. killed a few months back. You remember her? Yeah. Uh, just to show he, he could do it, you know, just because. Yes. So to prove he was still evil, you know. He was still he was still an evil fellow. Uh, now she gets the meta gene juice treatment here, and uh, if Laffham's art's to be believed, it looks like she hit menopause a while ago too. She uh, has aged quite a bit here. Is that a superpower? I don't know. Uh, Action Comics Annual Number Five: Loose Cannon by Jeff Loeb and Lee Motor. Uh, introducing Officer Eddie Loose Cannon Walker, a crippled ex police officer who changed into a hornless dollar store blue devil. Mm-hmm. Finally, Adventures of Superman Annual Number 5, Blood Relations by Carl Kiesel, Tom Grummet, and Ed Hannigan. This introduces Donna Carroll, DC, Sparks Force, who could become a being of pure, en- pure energy, 
Which, uh, you know, she's a thing. We sure have heard a lot from her since, haven't we? Oh, All yeah, these great, great characters, memorable great characters coming from Bloodlines. Mm-hmm. All right, so that so that uh, that uh, release date. I'm glad we over. spent all that time on those new creators. Huh? Oh, really? Yeah, really. <laughs> they sure. That was it, folks. We don't we don't see them again. Uh, so, Adventures of Superman number five hundred two, July nineteen ninety three. Boy meets girl by Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet. That was a dollar fifty, and it was Triangle number nineteen of nineteen ninety three. While saving some teenagers from crashing their car, Superboy meets Supergirl and the hormonal clone that he is. It's kind of awkward. Mm-hmm. Uh, she invites him to meet with her main man, Lex Ladadus. We know him. Vincent Edge hires Rex Leach as something of an agent for Superboy. He'll play prominently in Superboy's own ongoing series. Remember when Bibbo saved that puppy, the one named Krypton that could only fit Crypto on his uh, collar or his, his tag? Well, he gets a name tag engraved for the pup, and like we said, uh, it's on Metropolis dog tags only have six characters, so his name is Crypto, very conveniently. Yes. During dinner, Superboy agrees to join Team Luther, and after all, he'll they'll be able to, he'll be able to work with Supergirl. Anything to get in proximity of a chick is all he needs. And after mm-hmm. dinner, he also agrees to go exclusive with WGBS. To be fair, Rex Leach's daughter Roxy was all over him, and don't forget, Tana Moon comes with a deal as well. So wherever the ladies are, that's where Superboy wants to be at. That's what we that's, that's what we know right. here. <laughs> now we're going to hop over to Action Comics issue 689, July 1993 cover. Who is the True Hero by Stern and Geis? This is $1.50. It is triangle number 20 for 1993. Uh, a regeneration matrix inside the Fortress of Solitude opens. Out walks Superman. Mm-hmm. He heads over to a bank of monitors where he sees the four supermen in action and realizes he's going to have to intervene. Lex Luthor is uh, annoyed that he, uh, when he learns that Superboy signed on with WGBS. Uh, speaking of not being happy, Jonathan Kent is annoyed at the phony Superman and uh, might want to say something about it. Yeah. I'm not sure if he ever gets around to it. Uh, the Eradicator and Steel... They do what uh, most uh, heroes do when they meet. They fight. Uh (laughs) Lois busts in to tell them that they're both disgracing the symbol. Uh, We learn that Rex Leach has trademarked the Superman name. Damn, who's starting the back of the check at that time? I I know, right? Siegel and Schuster? I don't know. (laughs) Does DC have that? And and in so doing, he also serves the Eradicator and Steel with cease and desist papers. (laughs) The two supermen take their fight west to Coast City. And later to the courthouse. Yes. Uh, I remember this, too, where Lex, Lex is really mad that he thinks, you know, that his exclusivity agreement has been, you know, dismissed yep. by Superboy. And it's like, Superboy's a clone, and plus he's like a teenager. Like, nothing, yep. he, nothing he signed is legally <laughs> binding. Uh, you know, it's like, believe me, that this is not an uh, ironclad contract here. Anyway, uh... <laughs> Superman, the Man of Steel, number 24, August 1993. This is Impact by Simonson and Bogdanov. $1.50 cover price, number 21 of 1993 in the triangle numeral thing. Eradicator and Steel <laughs> <Yes>. briefly fight. <laughs> uh, Lex Luthor and the, Lex Luthor, the sequel strikes a deal with White Rabbit to deliver her steel, or deliver to her steel the, the character, not just steal the raw metal. Yes. Uh, and so Steel is offered a free ride back to Metropolis where he finds himself on the business end of a whole lot of gunfire. Steel is taken by White Rabbit to a factory where the Toastmasters are assembled. She intends to blow up the factory with him in it, but it doesn't quite go down that way. The bomb goes off, trapping her, but Steel is able to escape. 
Yeah, why would you ever uh, accept a free ride back to Metropolis? I know, really. From Lex Luthor, of all people. All right. <laughs> We're going to go to Superman, Volume 2, Number 80. This is August 93, Cover 8, Deadly Alliance by Dan Jurgens. This is $1.50. It's triangle number 22 for 1993. Satellites have picked up on the fact that there's a giant spacecraft approaching the Earth. More specifically, Coast City. Yeah, Mongol says, Destroy it! We want them to know as little of us as possible. And so, a nearby satellite is blasted. One that belonged to Lex Luthor, in fact. And he's annoyed that his feed was cut. Luckily, all he has to do is turn his head, and he's got several more televisions to watch. Uh, they all appear to be on the same network, but what are you going to do? I mean, it really seems a little ostentatious, like he's bragging, you can watch the same channel on several TVs, and we mean, like, dozens of TVs. Yeah. <laughs> Can't say I wouldn't do the same thing if I could. I'd just have sure. a TV and the same thing, kind of, kind of show people how little I care. But anyway, uh, <laughs> the Eradicator is still there and currently helping out put out a fire at Ferris Aircraft. He decides he'll stay to help out with the possible, possible invasion as well. Yeah, so a guy from Ferris goes, uh, we just got a flash alert from NASA that reports an alien craft headed this way. Eradicator says, looks like I'll be staying. Glad to hear it, Superman. Green Lantern isn't around these days, and we'll take whatever protection we can get. This fellow seems referring to the events of DC Universe Trinity from 1993, where Hal, the Dark Stars, and the L-E-G-I-O-N Legion have a cosmic adventure, and they're off-planet mm-hmm. for a time. White House contacts their Superman, the cyborg one, to advise him of the pending Coast City situation. And I can't do a Bill Clinton impression, so I'll just <laughs> do it straight. Uh, someone from the White House goes, uh, White House security Superman, White House security Superman. Superman here? How can I be of service? So casual. You know, you almost expect them to ask if he wants fries. With yeah, that, a know? little too casual, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> As this is going down, the giant spacecraft arrives and hovers over Coast City. And it releases a load of orbs or globes. Yeah. These uh, glowy things. Uh, now, the Eradicator heads in to investigate, and he, but he finds himself blasted by... The Cyborg Superman. Uh-oh. Cyborg claims that the Eradicator will be blamed for what's about to happen. Your first and last mistake. I don't know who or what you are, but as you go to your grave, there's one thing you should know. You'll be blamed for the death of millions. We jump right on board the ship where one of the lackeys goes, All the globes have been landed, sir. Your orders? Detonate them, fool! I want all 77,000 of them detonated now! By your command. And so, a caption reads, It sounds like a million thunderstorms rolled into one. 77,000 explosive devices erupt as one, and the world is changed forever. As it said, the orbs ignite, and Coast City is atomized. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. In seconds, a series of 77,000 individual explosions, each one powerful enough to topple the building, coalesces into one massive blast capable of wiping out an entire metropolitan area. Every office, every home, every school and hospital is atomized. The West Coast and its entire ecosystem is instantaneously shattered, and more than 7 million men women, and children that once called the Coast City area home, die. 
The craft then drops mechanical seeds from which a new city will grow. And they're basically smaller, darker globes than we just saw. Uh, now, the Eradicator is left in an energy form. Have to get inside to the fortress before my existence comes to an end again. And then the White House calls again. They say, White House is Superman, White House is Superman. Great, Scott, if you can hear me, you've got to answer. Please. I can barely hear you, White House. There's a lot of debris in the atmosphere. Tell me what you found. The smoke and ash are so thick that our satellites can't see through it. We can't raise anyone in Coast City either. I mean, tell me that th this isn't really. It is. I did everything possible to prevent it, but Coast City is gone. Everything is gone. At the fortress, we hear a voice from within a Kryptonian battlesuit. Finally, with this suit, I will survive. Oh, that's a really... It looks like the Eradicator made it, at least. Well, who says that's the Eradicator? Oh. Oh. And we close out with Cyborg boarding the giant ship and learning who its master is. It's totally Mongol, which we've already spoiled. This was supposed to be a surprise, though. Yes, and uh, maybe this is a surprise, but Mongol kneels before the cyborg and kisses his hand. Yeah, cyborg says, Earth will be doomed. Yes, master. Your dreams and wishes will be fulfilled. I have reshaped Coast City to my desire, and Metropolis is next. Uh-oh. We, we jump immediately to Adventures of Superman number 503, August 1993 cover date. Line of Fire by Kiesel and Grummet. Dollar 50, 23 of 1993. Cyborg is still pretending to be a good guy, and he's claiming that another one of the Supermen was behind the destruction of Coast City. We're talking about the Eradicator, of course. Superboy is sent in to assist the Cyborg in checking out the smoldering crater, and as you might imagine, it doesn't really work out too well for the kid. <laughs> Uh, we can see that the Mongols' uh, mechanical seats have already blossomed into a new engine-like city. Yeah, he must have used Miracle Grow. Think so. So, uh, Action Comics number six ninety, August nineteen ninety three cover date. That's Lies and Revelations by Stern and Geis, dollar fifty covered. Triangle number twenty four of nineteen ninety three. Superboy wakes up, a captive of Mongol and Cyborg, Superman's engine city. The cyborg tricks the Justice League task force into chasing the rogue Eradicator. Mongol unwittingly informs Superboy that the cyborg plans to destroy Metropolis next. The Eradicator realizes that he's not really Superman, and in a Kryptolian battlesuit so slowly makes its way toward Metropolis. Mm-hmm. Now, Superman, the Man is Steel, number 25. We're not going to tell you, we don't tell you what the covers show, especially not this one, because no. it ruins what's inside. <laughs> uh, this is another uh, this is September 1993 cover date. The title is The Return by Simonson and Bogdanov. This is a dollar fifty and triangle number 25 of 1993. It's convenient. Man of Steel 25, triangle number 25. Hey. Yeah, it happens once every thousand years. <laughs> um, <laughs> now Superboy manages to escape from Engine City using his strange form of telekinesis that uh, Superman doesn't have. I don't seem to recall him having. Maybe in the uh, Silver Age he had a couple issues, but... They got wiped away. Yeah. Yes. Now he heads to Metropolis to warn them that they are next on Mongol and the Cyborg's intergalactic hit list. Uh -oh. Jeb Friedman, you remember him? He continues to creep on Lois, but she ain't feeling it. Uh, she plans to head to Coast City to investigate, despite editor Perry White saying, "No, don't do that. That's a bad idea." Which literally is like demanding that she should do it. Is based is the result. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> you you totally you totally don't want to do that. Right. <laughs> 
Uh, now, Supergirl is also planning to go to Coast City, uh, even though Lex insists she remain in Metropolis, because, uh, you know, there is a giant Kryptonian battlesuit headed their way, and uh, he fears it might be another case of the doomsdays. That's right. Uh, it's it's walking so, through the ocean and everything, right? It is. It's totally just unstoppable. Mm-hmm. And so Supergirl is on the battlesuit case now. At the airport, Lois and Steel chat about the Coast City disaster, and they share a few theories. Supergirl rushes by, heading directly for the robot rising from the bay. Steel pitches in, beating the bot with his hammer. Then Superboy returns, and he pitches in, too. Superboy warns John Henry that the cyborg and Mongol plan on decimating Metropolis next. And then the robot opens, revealing, as if the cover didn't spoil it, Superman. Yeah, I mean, this might be one of the most tepid reveals. Right. right here, because of the cover, and because like we've already by process of elimination, and we know it's not the Eradicator. Uh, right, yeah. we know it's not certain. We it's like we know what's, what was going to happen here. Uh, the nature of his, you know, getting his powers back is like a little unknown. But it pretty much uh, took the air out of that sale or whatever. But anyway, uh, keep marching on. Superman Volume Two, Number Eighty One, September Nineteen Ninety Three, cover date: Resurrections by Jurgens. Dollar fifty cover, triangle number twenty six of nineteen ninety three. This new and depowered Superman who just emerged from the Kryptonian battlesuit pleads his case as being the real deal. He shares some things with Lois that only the real Clark would or should know. Back in Engine City, we learn that Cyborg Superman is actually Hank Henshaw. That's a character first appeared in Adventures of Superman number four sixty six in May nineteen ninety, and was created by Dan Jurgens. He's basically the Reed Richards of a doomed space shuttle trip. Uh, this was the LexCorp shuttle Excalibur, which crashed after being nailed with a solar flare. Upon return, Hank's body began to decay, but before death, his consciousness shifted into a, shifted into a robotic body and then somehow into the Kal-El's Kryptonian birthing matrix, because, sure, uh, must, must have been on the internet, must have been on mm-hmm. one of those old... Uh, you know, 12 odd motives, exactly. (laughs) Blaming Superman for the Excalibur disaster, he vows to commit atrocities while wearing his face. Superman borrows some Team Luther rocket boots and heads off to Engine City to dole out some justice alongside his stand-ins. We hop over to Adventures of Superman number 504, September 1993, cover date. Assault on Engine City by Kiesel and Grummet. Dollar 50 cover, triangle number 27 for 93. Uh, the super folks make their way to Engine City, and they're attacked. Superman, the real one, arms himself, so if you ever wanted to see Superman doing his best cable cosplay... Mm-hmm. Boy, howdy, this is the issue for you. <laughs> Uh, Cyborg launches a, a rocket toward Metropolis, and Superboy. What's that movie where they ride a rocket or oh, a missile or something? Is that how I how I learned to love the bomb or something like, something like that? Yeah. So Superboy does that. He rides this bomb back, and he manages to pull it skyward just before it hits the Daily Planet building, and then it explodes. Superboy is feared dead, and let me tell you, with the real Superman back. Why not, right? Yeah, I mean, none of these characters... It's a heroic death. It was so... Now that Superman's back, none of these other four characters seemed integral at all. Like, none nope. of them... You know, we went from thinking one of them might stick around to like, oh, they all could go away and nothing's... You know, we'll be back to status quo. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll talk about that more later. First, we have more of more comics to discuss, and that's Action Comics, number 691, September 1993, cover date. Secret Weapon by Stern and Geis. That was $1.50 cover. Triangle number 28 of 1993. Superboy survived, don't worry, but is too wiped out by the blast to return to Engine City. Supergirl acts as Superman's secret weapon to take out some troops. 
Cyborg Superman realizes that Superman is back now, and Mongol reveals that the engine city is powered by kryptonite. Over at the Fortress of Solitude, the Eradicator repowers himself to rejoin the fight. Mm-hmm. Superman, the Man of Steel, number 26, October 1993. Blast off by Simonson and Bogdanov. $1.50, number 29 of 1993. Cyborg helps Steel shut down the kryptonite-powered engine. Uh, he hasn't turned good on us. He's just ticked off at Mongol. Yeah. Uh, the engine is destroyed, but the kryptonite remains. A depowered Superman gets his clock cleaned by Mongol. And on the horizon, <laughs> a wild Hal Jordan approaches. Oh, no. You better use, uh, you know... Fuzz, I don't know I don't yes. play enough Pokemon Something sorry. yellow, I don't know uh, <laughs> Green Lantern, <laughs> Volume 3, Number 46, October 1993 This is that one Green Lantern issue we were talking about mm. Death City by Gerard Jones and M.D. Bright, Doll 25, cover date Hal arrives and takes on Mongol, but gets his ass handed to him He uses his ring to construct a suit of armor and smashes Mongol with Steel's hammer Superman does some battle with Cyborg Superman When the dust settles, Hal considers using his ring to bring Coast City back. That mm. never happened, yeah, right? Nothing ever comes of that, I'm pretty sure. Never, ever. Interesting. No, it goes away real quick. Right. Uh, now, that's the issue that I I don't know. I misremembered it in my head here. I thought all the Engine City, the Coast City explosion stuff happened in that issue. So I was uh, very underwhelmed when I got to it and realized it was kind of just an ancillary issue. It was just sort of a wrap-up, but it, it obviously yeah. leads into big, big changes big for Hal Jordan going Indeed. on. Yeah. Now we're going to hop into Superman Volume 2, number 82, October 1993 cover date. Back for Good by Jurgens. It's $1.50 and number 30 from 1993. Superman continues to battle the cyborg as the Eradicator returns to the scene. Cyborg manages to burn Superman's chest with his whatever approximation of heat vision is. Sure. Uh, he then opens Steel's armor up as though he were a can opener, yep. which takes him out of the <laughs> takes like him a, out of the proceedings. Or like a lobster or something. It just like cracks <laughs> him open. He's just peeled and cracked, yep. Now, it looks as though a Cyborg is intermingling into the Engine City's machinery. Uh, he reveals to Superman that he is actually Hank Henshaw, and he gives a very skewed recollection of what actually happened in their history together. Yeah, very uh, Hank Henshaw pro recollection. Mm, yeah. Uh, very positive towards him. Anyway, the Eradicator reveals that he was behind the real Superman's restoration. Yeah, Superman goes, you mean you can restore life? Eradicator replies, not quite. Though the conditions were ideal and your Kryptonian body in Earth's environment was uniquely suited to the recuperative process, you had nearly extinguished your massive store of solar energies in your battle with Doomsday. Only by getting to you quickly and administering the healing baths of the Matrix Chamber could I help? Mm, and the two supermen arrive at the Engine City's glass-encased kryptonite core. Cyborg smashes the glass case, releasing its radioactive greenness. Superman claims that while kryptonite is deadly for him, it can also kill humans, so back off. Yeah. Uh, Gives as him he cancer, says it, apparently, as we know. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> now, as he says this, this, the green glow draws Superboy Steel and Supergirl to the core as well. But they find themselves at a dead end. Superman punches Henshaw's cybernetic jaw clean off, which makes him look like he's going. It's awful. Cyborg retaliates by firing a kryptonite hose, which the Eradicator dives in front of. Uh, Cyborg continues to pummel the twosome with kryptonite, and the uh, the Eradicator is turned into some uh, beef jerky from the looks of it. Um, 
Outside, Hal Jordan flies up to meet Steel, Superboy, and Supergirl, and uh, they're still at that dead end, so Hal bashes through that wall with his uh, willpower, and it releases, uh, you know, a, a lot of kryptonite dust, yeah. so he protects the, uh, the now foursome in a green bubble. <laughs> When the kryptonite dust settles, we see Cyborg Superman standing over Eradicator's beefy, spicy corpse. <laughs> but he's not alone. In the background, Superman reclaims his cape and proceeds to beat the holy hell out of the bad guy. He actually punches right through the cyborg, impaling him on his arm, holds him aloft, then vibrates his arm, shattering the cyborg into a whole lot of itty-bitty pieces. It's pretty hardcore. Yeah. Uh, at this point, we wrap up the issue with Superman use, Supergirl using her hoodoo to repair Superman's costume. And the Kid of Steel finally admits that there's only one Superman, and it, it's not him. It's it's the real guy. So he'll be named Super Dude from now on. Yes. Uh, I, this one I remember well because it was very satisfying to see this happening to Cyborg Superman. Because he's, yes. he's the most obviously duplicitous, and I really... Oh, yeah. Really rubbed me the wrong way, and uh, you know, it's nice to see a guy like that get his comeuppance even in a fiction comic book. Uh, <laughs> Adventures of Superman number 505, October 1993, cover date Reign of the Superman by Kiesel and Grummet, Duck Triangle number 31 of 1993. This had a $1.50 standard cover, $2.50 foil cover. Also came in a half black bag variation pack with a numbered postcard featuring the cover of Superman number one for $1.50. Mm-hmm. Uh, Superman flies back to Metropolis and taps on Lois Lane's window. Sounds like a euphemism. Uh, they all sound like that to me. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we close out with a mid-air makeout session. We later join Clark coming out of the shower, and Lo- Lois is recalling the events of the past several months. Clark tells her none of this ever happened. It all must have just been a dream. So this seems like maybe a little Dallas in our Superman comics all of a sudden. So. Uh, you know, where's Patrick Duffy? Is he coming mm-hmm. out of the woodwork here? Uh, the fiancés engage in a tickle fight before another reality sets in. How do they explain Clark Kent's miraculous return? No time for that right now, though. Superman senses trouble. Elsewhere, the super team arrives back in Metropolis. Steel is somehow back in his armor, and the Eradicator is looking far more alive than he had last issue as well. We join Superman as he takes down a fantastic foursome of criminals mm-hmm. at a bank. Uh, Lex Luthor watches this unfold, though oddly, not on a bank of television screens, just from his window. Uh, he vows to destroy him. Maybe for, on the, you assume on the television screens, though, that is what's being shown. So if he, sure. tur- if he turns around, he can watch it just as well. Uh, he vows to destroy him, blah, blah, same old Lex Luthor thing. Uh, we get some touching reunions, Superman and Jimmy, and then Superman and Bibbo. And everyone's happy that their favorite is back. Superman saves a family from under a building, to which Jimmy suggests perhaps Clark Kent is also stuck under a building. Fixes in, folks. I think so. We're going to jump over to Action Comics number 692. It's October 1993. Story is called And Who, Disguised as Clark Kent, by Roger Stern, Carl Kiesel, and Jackson Geis. $1.50, and this is triangle number 32 for 1993. Just like Jimmy said, Superman saves Clark Kent. Jimmy takes a photo of Lois hugging both Superman and Clark at the rescue scene because Clark was totally being played by Supergirl. Duh. Right. Well, she is that protoplasm that can reform itself, so that's how that worked, right? Basically, <laughs> yes. was that she was able to fake it. 
Certainly. Now we're going to wrap up the epic with an epilogue. This is Superman Volume 2, number 83, November 1993. This is Funeral for a Friend Epilogue on the Edge by Dan Jurgens. It was $1.50 and it was number 34 for the year 1993. We open with Superman in Gotham City talking to Commissioner Gordon and the bat signals on. It's eventually answered by a uh, an armored Batman. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, Superman wants Batman to come along to help take care of Engine City with the rest of the Justice League, but uh, this Batman ain't too keen on playing with a team. Uh, Superman does threaten to use his X-ray vision, but, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't do it. Uh, now, the League uh, clears up the Engine City debris, uh, leaving only a green-lit flame to commemorate the once great Coast City. The story and epic finally ends with Clark Kent returning to Metropolis, and asking Jimmy Olsen if they could be roommates for a little while. Jimmy says, This is great, Clark. We'll have a monster time hanging out. Let's crank some Van Halen to celebrate. And I what, wish it was Axl Rose in the band, but... What better music to celebrate? The return of <laughs> Superman, the return of Clark Kent. That was very exciting. Uh, you might as well jump. That's right, exactly. Well, back then, you might as well... Uh, Okay, not drive 55, I think. There you go. <laughs> but uh, we're going to wrap up the bios of the core uh, creators, uh, people that worked on the Superman titles and this uh, event, and then we'll, we'll talk about our feelings about it. But, of course, the man that orchestrated the whole thing, Mr. Mike Carlin in 2000, said, A lot of people criticized us for doing something commercial. They thought we only did it for commercial reasons. But every single story that we've plotted, and I guarantee you it was the same with every editor and writer before us, was designed to hook a new reader. The problem, as time goes on and we're living in the 80s and 90s, is that a lot of people have decided that Superman is corny. They've decided that they saw a movie or a cartoon and it wasn't what they expected. It was our intention to get them to read the comic. If they didn't like it, that's cool, but at least try what we're doing, as opposed to being influenced by an old movie or serials. At the same time, the extent we had to go to try and get people to read the comics seemed very drastic and calculated. The bottom line is that we just wanted to tell the story of the world that took Superman for granted. After 50 years, a lot of kids didn't want their father's superhero. They were on their own like Ninja Turtles. They were onto their own like Ninja Turtles, who wanted to illustrate that Superman offered something pertinent for the world of the 90s and beyond. To do that, we had to show how cruddy it would be if he wasn't alive that you don't know what you have until it's gone. And that was the whole motivation of the story. Wow. So mm-hmm. there you go. Uh, that He laid it out, folks. That's why they did it. Now, from 1996 to 2002, he was an executive editor at DC Comics, and as of 2014, Mike Carlin was DC Entertainment's director of animation. He won an Eisner Award in 1994 for Best Editor for the Superman titles, won the 1994 Inkpot Award, and Mike Carlin has been featured two times within comics. Uh, one time in Batman Adventures number 13, October 1993 cover by Kelly Puckett and Mike Parabek. Batman faces a trio of screwball supervillains based on important contributors to the Dark Knight. So there was the Mastermind, which was Mike Carlin, the Professor, Denny O'Neill, and Mr. Nice, which was Archie Goodwin. Then in Superman, The Man of Steel, number 75, January 1998, by Louise Simonson and John Bogdanov. A throwback to Superman, number 75, Mr. Mizius Pitlick creates a second doomsday to kill Superman, who then who is then promptly revived by the supreme being, who is Mike Carlin, or looks just like him. Uh, he was also referenced on Lois and Clark, uh, The New Adventures of Superman, both in the last name of Lex Luthor's ex-wife, Ariana Carlin, 
And it's the name of a restaurant referenced in the first episode, Carlini's. Mm-hmm. The entire Death of Superman creative team was features on Lois and Clark as extras, which I didn't know. They were. Yes, they were in a crowd scene, yeah, where Superman was uh, coming down to land, and they, uh, they all pointed up to him. And the amount of money they made as an extra that day exceeded their <laughs> yearly salary. Uh... <laughs> their decadely salary. Yeah. <laughs> we'll wrap up a little bit more Louise Simonson here. Uh, Louise returned to Marvel in 1999 to write Warlock. This was the M-Tech one, which was, uh, yeah. Uh, nine issues, October 1999 through June 2000. Uh, of course, this was featuring the uh, character she co-created in The New Mutants. Right. She wrote uh, Galactus the Devourer, six issues from September of 99 to March 2000. Galactus dies for a little while in this one. In 2005, she wrote stories featuring Magnus Robot Fighter for the publisher iBooks Incorporated. In 2007, she wrote a one-shot starring Magic of the New Mutants as part of a four-issue event known as Mystic Arcana. Uh, in 2008 through 2009, she wrote several issues of Marvel Adventures. This is the uh, line of one-shot comics that were aimed at the younger readers. Uh, she also co-wrote the comic World of Warcraft for Wildstorm, also a manga story based on the Warcraft universe for Tokyo Pop. Uh, she'd win the Eagle Award for Power Pack, the Comics Buyer's Guide Award for The Death of Superman, and the Ink Pot Award for Outstanding Achievement in Comic Arts in 1992. Yeah, all three of them in 1992, so... Mm-hmm. Nice job. A little more on Job Bogdanov. After leaving the Superman Man of Steel title, Bogdanov drew two intercompany crossovers for DC Comics. One was Superman and Savage Dragon, Metropolis, November 1999. Sorry, co-published with Image Comics. And then Superman Aliens 2, God War, that was May 2002 to November 2002, co-published with Dark Horse Comics. John often works creating DC character style guides and commercial art for Warner Brothers. In 2011, Bogdanov teamed again with Simonson for a new Superman one-shot, which was Superman Retroactive 1990s. People don't remember this retroactive thing. Yeah, it uh, happened during Flashpoint. It was like it was during Flashpoint, and yeah. you know, on the cusp of 52, it totally gets shoved aside. Uh, it wasn't great. I'm not gonna lie to you, no, but you know, it was. It's, it's cool. You know, it's all right. Sure. You know, believe in hindsight. Uh, considering you can get them for a quarter apiece, it's not. It's, there are worse things you can get in the world. There are very worse things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in 2012, <laughs> in addition to his comics work, Bogdanov animated an upcoming video game, Mongolian Beef, created with his son. Bogdanov mm. has participated with his son, which we mentioned is named Kalel Bogdanov, on assorted film projects, including Hansel and Gretel in 2006. And he received an Inkpot Award at the San Diego Comic Con International in 2013. A little bit more on Dan Jurgens. Uh, Jurgens would write and draw Justice League America from issues 61 through 77. This is April of 92 through July of 93. He penciled a four-issue Metal Men series in 1993 as well. Uh, he wrote and penciled the crossover. Uh, it's a one of those crisis crossovers called Zero Hour, and uh, we discussed that one long form somewhere in the archives. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> he also uh, he also did uh, Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey miniseries. It's a uh, it was three prestige formats. Those were both in 1994. Uh, Jurgen scripted and provided layout art for the Superman vs. Aliens miniseries that was co-published by Dark Horse Comics in DC in 1995. In uh, 1996, Jurgen's and Italian artist Claudio Castellini worked on the high, highly publicized crossover Marvel vs. DC, which I currently I just recently reread and uh, 
<laughs> it's well, no great shakes. It was highly publicized. Uh, we didn't say it was highly lauded. No, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, in 1997, Dan developed the Tangent Comics imprint, uh, Elseworlds annual thing. Big. Uh, <laughs> it's about the size of it, huh? Yeah. In, uh, and actually, we're going to be uh, re-uploading uh, an episode where we talk about that this coming Tuesday. Nice. Uh, now, in January of 1996, Jurgens was writer and penciler of the sensational Spider-Man, which uh, was the repurposed web of Spider-Man over right. at Marvel Comics. He would write and pencil Teen Titans Volume 2 for its entire two-year, 24-issue run. This was October 1996 through September of 1998. Uh, George Perez, the co-creator of the new Teen Titans, served as anchor for the series' first 15 issues. Which must have been mind-blowing, I think, to Jurgens himself. Uh, I'm sure. would have been like, wow. Anyway, uh, after ten years of working on Superman characters, Surgans ended his run as writer with Superman Volume 2, number 150, November 1999 cover date. Also in the same year, Jurgens was writer and layout artist for the tabloid size graphic novel Superman Fantastic Four, with finished art by his former The Adventures of Superman inker Art Thibir. Jurgens worked with Marvel Comics as writer on Thor Volume 2 with penciling by John Romita Jr. and as writer-artist on Captain America Volume 3. In 1995, he was a writer-penciler on Solar, fifth for, number 46, from Valiant Comics, with inker Dick Giordano, and Dan stuck around on that comic for a while. Penciler Tom Kreinberg joined for, in for issues number 51 to 54, after Jurgens relinquished penciler duties with issue 50. Jurgens was the debut writer of The Tomb Raider, the series comic book in 1999, licensed to Top Cow Productions and Image Comics. And the debut issue of Tomb Raider was the number one selling comic book of that year. Wild. I know. Every time we say it, it comes up every now and again. I'm just like, wow, what a weird year that would have been. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jurgens was writer of the series until issue 21. In 2000, Dan was the writer and provided layouts for the four-issue prestige miniseries Titans, Legion of Superheroes, Colon Universe of Blaze, with finishes provided by Phil Jimenez. Jurgens wrote Aquaman Volume 3 from issue 63, January 2000 cover, until its cancellation with issue number 75, January 2001 cover date. In November 2002, he wrote and penciled the four-issue weekly miniseries Superman Day of Doom, January 2003. It marked the 10-year anniversary of the Death of Superman event from 1992. Mm-hmm. In 2005, Jurgens moved into the world of book publishing to write and illustrate the You Can Draw Marvel Characters book for Dorling Kindersley Publishing. Uh, DC, uh, Dan would return to DC Comics, providing layouts for the lead story in the Infinite Crisis Secret Files 2006 special that was cover dated April of that year. He also provided art for the weekly series 52 and of the six-issue limited series Crisis Aftermath, The Battle for Bloodhaven, written by Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray. Uh, Jurgens collaborated with writer-creator Marv Wolfman on the Nightwing series for issues 125 through 128. On Metamorpho Year One, Jurgens was writer and penciler for the first two issues. Uh, Mike Norton would draw issues three through six. Jurgens was writer and artist of the History of the Multiverse backup stories in the weekly Countdown, which appeared in issues 49 through 38. At the Los Angeles Comic-Con in March 2007, DC announced a new ongoing Booster Gold series, which would be written by Jeff Johns and penciled by Jurgens and inked by Norm Rapmund. That began shortly at the end of uh, the Weekly 52 series. Um, he was writer of Tangent, Superman's Reign Limited series in 2008, which revisited those Tangent characters. He wrote and illustrated an issue of Brave and the Bold, Volume 2, Number 23, July 2009 cover, which featured Booster Gold and Magog. 
Part of DC Comics' new 52 relaunch in 2011, becoming writer of the new Justice League International series with artist Aaron Lepresti. Dan was the artist of the new Green Arrow series with writer J.T. Krull and inker George Perez initially. And then he became co-writer of Green Arrow with Keith Giffen on issues 3 through 6, and George Perez had vanished by then for reasons that we're not going to get into here. Mm-hmm. Jurgers would return to Superman, writing and co- drawing and co-writing with Keith G- Giffen. Uh, their first issue was number 7 in May 2012. During 2012 to 2013, Jurgers was writer and artist of Fury of the Firestorms, The Nuclear Man, from issues 13 to 20. Then it was canceled with Mercy. In 2014, he and Giffen, together with Jeff Lemire and Brian Azzarella, co-wrote the weekly series, The New 52, Future's End, which did not miss a week. Uh, Jurgens became the writer for Batman Beyond, starting with issue number one in issue 2015, and he was the writer for the two-issue miniseries Convergence Superman in 2015, and was the writer for Superman Lois and Clark, which grew out of that event from 2015 to 2016, which actually is pretty good until the very... Very end because that's when it the rug to, got pulled out exactly. Yeah. It had to turn into rebirth. But uh, of all the things come out of convergence, that was a very positive thing. I, I recommend people sure. get a look if they have the uh, time and pocket change. As part of the DC rebirth launch of 2016, Jurgens is writing action comics. In 2017, he drew the Commandy Challenge number seven, written by Marguerite Bennett, and he's married with two children. Yeah, he's still writing mm-hmm. action comics. Yes, this moment, yeah. Yeah, and I think he, he was posting art on his Twitter, so I think he is doing some uh, some art coming up, too. That would be great. I mean, he, he actually shows up um, now and again, uh, you know, on hmm. an annual or he'll uh, con- contributing to an anthology. Uh, he is such a—I I really love—you know, we love his writing, but— Sure. God, I love his art too. You know, I wish I wish he could do everything because he's just a classic, <laughs> great comic artist. But anyway, enough. We've done enough <laughs> on uh, Jurgens now. We have. We're gonna do a little bit more on Jerry Ordway. Uh, now, Ordway has noted that inking is a weird job because as much as you put into it, the page still belongs to the penciler. And uh, I totally get that. Yeah. Uh, he co-created the character Wildstar with Al Gordon. And this is in Wildstar, colon, Sky Zero, number one, March 1993. Ordway inked the second of DC's continuity redefining events in 1994 by inking over the fellow we just talked about, Dan Jurgens' pencils on Crisis Hour. Um, crisis Hour. Zero, zero, zero in hour. time. <laughs> zero in time. Zero hour crisis in time. Available in the archive. <laughs> Uh, in 1994, Ordway masterminded the return of the original Captain Marvel to the DC Universe with the 96-page hardcover graphic novel, The Power of Shazam, which he both wrote and painted. This was followed by an ongoing monthly series, also titled The Power of Shazam, which ran between 1995 and 1999. Uh, Ordway would write and provide uh, amazing painted covers for this entire run of the series, uh, as well as uh, illustrating fill-in issues between series regular artist Peter Krause and Mike Manley. Uh, toward the end of the series run, he again took the dual role as writer and artist. He wrote and illustrated a three-issue arc of The Avengers. This is Volume 3, The Hero's Return uh, run. This is issues 16 through 18, May through July 1999, covering for uh, Kurt Busiek and George Perez. Uh, Ordway published his creator-owned one-shot, The Messenger, that came out through Image Comics in July of 2000. In uh, 2001, he drew the one-shot, Just Imagine, dot, 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 Stan Lee with Jerry Ordway creating the JLA. Uh, The alternate versions of DC Comics characters already dreamt up by Stan Lee form an alternative version of 
the Justice League. So, Go figure. Right. Uh, he inked uh, the last year as May 2002 through May 2003 of the Batman title Azrael, Agent of the Bat. This is issues 88 through 100. Ordway also provided the artwork for a six-issue story arc in Wonder Woman. That was volume two, issues 189 to 194, with writer Walt Simonson in 2003. In 2004, Ordway was inker on JLA issues 94 to 99. This is the 10th Circle story arc, which reunited former Uncanny X-Men created team of writer Chris Claremont and artist John Byrne, and rebooted the Doom Patrol again. Yeah. Uh, to not the best version of it. Uh, in 2003 <laughs> to 2008... He provided new covers to the Superman The Man of Steel series of six trade paperbacks. Ordway provided the artwork for the flashback scene set on Earth 2 for Infinite Crisis. That was December 2005 to June 2006, including a recreation of the cover to the Action Comics number 1, which he cites as another favorite piece of his. He inked Dan Jurgens' pencils once again in the history of the multiverse backup stories in the weekly comic book Countdown, issues number 39 and... Number 38, chapters 11 and 12, October 2007 cover. Jerry penciled three issues of The Brave and the Bold, volume 2, number 11 through 13, May through July 2008, with writer Mark Wade. He provided pencils for the Justice Society of America annual number 1, September 2008 cover, alongside some interior artwork for the ongoing Justice Society of America series during late 2008. In 2012... Ordway worked on a Challenge of the Unknown storyline for DC's Universe Presents with DC co-publisher Dan DiDio. Later that same year, he drew a Human Bomb limited series, which was written by Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti. Ordway and artist Steve Rude produced a Superman story for DC's Adventures of Superman digital series in 2014. Ordway received an Inkpot Award in 1994, and then in 2017, he was awarded the Inkwell Awards, Joe Sinnott Hall of Fame Award for being for an inking career in American comic books of outstanding accomplishment. Mm. Good job. And Jerry is married to Peggy May Ordway, who I assume was not originally named Peggy May Ordway, but there I hope not. There we have it. Yeah, really. <laughs> we don't know. Well, that was all of our creators, but uh, what about all these new characters we oh, just yeah. met? Yeah, you know, we yeah, have, this kind of deserves a little Animal House-style wrap-up, doesn't it? You know, the, <laughs> it does. Where all the characters we, are now. We need a little where are they now, so we're going to start with Doomsday. Now, Doomsday's true origin was revealed during Superman slash Doomsday colon Hunter slash Prey. Uh, he would be uh, revealed to be created on Krypton in the distant past by a scientist named Bertrand, who was looking to create what he considered to be the ultimate life form. Now, each time Doomsday died, his remains were harvested and reused to create a stronger version. Over several decades of cloning and genetic engineering, the creature would become the doomsday that we know. Uh, he'd escape Krypton and beat up a whole lot of people across the galaxy. Uh, also, during Hunter Prey, Doomsday defeated Darkseid. Because that's how uh, we established tough characters in the 90s. We <laughs> gave him decisive wins over already established tough guys. Um, <laughs> he would ultimately be left at the end of time by Wave Rider. Entropy being the only thing that Doomsday wouldn't be able to adapt to defeat. And we never saw him. Just kidding. Uh, during <laughs> our Worlds at War, Doomsday was used by President, Lex's President Lex Luthor's Suicide Squad to fight off Imperiax. Imperial X wins, which tells us that 90s world we just mentioned continued on to early 2000s. Uh, toward the end of the pre-Flashpoint DCU, Doomsday struck again, actually closing out the original volume of Action Comics. 
in the new 52 Doomsday might have killed Superman, maybe, mm-hmm. when it was convenient to mention. Uh, yeah. There was that yeah, five year dealing. Yeah, oh. some five years. Also, he ended up being a virus uh, later on. <laughs> uh, in DC Rebirth, Superman and Doomsday faced off again. Uh, Superman <laughs> won the day, but Mr. Oz swiped Doomsday's body and. Uh, I believe he's free, broken free now, but we don't know where he is in the in the universe right at the moment, I believe. Indeed. Now we're going to talk about Mitch. <laughs> After being the annoying jerk in the Death of Superman storyline, Mitch discovered that he had a metahuman power, something about magnets. Uh, he took Superman's example and took the superhero identity of Outburst, and he would go on to lead the Supermen of America. We're going to talk about Cyborg Superman. After his cyborg Superman body was destroyed by Superman, Henshaw transferred his consciousness into a device he had planted on Doomsday before sending him into that infinite void last time. Uh, Doomsday's body was brought to Apocalypse, and there, Henshaw hopped into the body of an Apocalyptian trooper. Uh, he, this is when he turned like he was red and he had longer hair. Now, he attempted to take over Apocalypse during Hunter Prey, but was uh, ultimately destroyed by Darkseid's Omega Beam which somehow shifted Hentro's consciousness into an Omega Orb. Why not? He was, he was briefly shifted into the Marvel Universe, where he did battle with Silver Surfer. Uh, he, you know, that was a one-shot. He was eventually uh, tracked to the edge of the universe by Hal Jordan. You can check out our coverage of that in the uh, Final Night episode, uh, where Hal and him have their, quote, final face-off. See, the problem with uploading your consciousness into a device or into, the, uh, you know, the computer or something is then it basically becomes, like, a, something that can just be moved around at will, you know? It's like yes. any kind of, like, a toaster or something, like, and then it ended up over here, you know, then it ended up in my grandma's attic for five weeks. The curing, but yeah. <laughs> uh, Henshaw popped up again in Sector 3601, home of the Manhunters. Hmm. He became their new grandmaster, eventually captured by the Guardians of the, of the Universe and held on Oa. He's freed by Superboy Prime when he does that pow, that punch, right? And mm-hmm. brought to Quar to kick off the Sinestro Core War. Joined up with hopes uh, that the Anti-Monitor could reward him with a final death. That didn't work out for him. S- speaking of which, during Blackest Night, Henshaw tried to get Necron to, to kill him for keeps. Uh, Necron didn't even care enough about him to give him a second look, unfortunately. The guy just wants to die for <laughs> crying out loud. Then New 52 stuffed happened where he claimed to be Supergirl's father, Zor-El. That was a lie. There was also an army of cyborg <laughs> supermen. I don't know what that was about. Yep. In DC's Rebirth universe, Henshaw again appeared to be a thorn in Superman's side. Uh, we think he's currently hanging out in the Phantom Zone. But I, I think so. I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't bet a dime on it. Testify to that. (laughs) Now, the other fellow we're going to talk about, the Eradicator. Now, this Kryptonian artifact first appeared in Action Comics Annual Number 2. This is May 1989, and it was created by Roger Stern. Uh, Following the reign of the Superman, the Eradicator essence merged with the body of a Dr. David Connor over at Star Labs. Now more heroic, the merged Eradicator joins the Outsiders. Many years later, the the Eradicator would try to kill Crypto, something that would get him thrown in suspended animation by the Man of Steel. He he saw Crypto as a some sort of a uh, slight on Kryptonians or I something. See. Okay. Uh, now he would eventually return in some very John Byrne inspired Kryptonian garb to point out. 
anomalies and whatnot. That's what he became. Because <laughs> so we had a, like Mr. Majestic came over from Wildstorm and he's like, he's an anomaly. That was his whole gimmick. There you go. Uh, <laughs> wow. He, yes. He would be injured and rendered comatose by an OMAC. Not, not the you know Mohawk fellow, but the, the robots. Right. Uh, a new Eradicator would show up during the new Krypton arc, and in DC's Rebirth era, he showed up to try to kill the impure half-Kryptonian Jonathan Kent. And we believe he's currently keeping Henshaw company in the Phantom Zone. It's definitely getting full in the Phantom Zone, as I understand <laughs> it. Is. A lot of people, I know Rick Flagg's in there, a lot of people are hanging out in there. <laughs> uh, talk about Superboy, who we now know as Con L. Superboy moved to Hawaii with the Leeches and Double X. Khan's first ongoing series, Superboy Volume 4, would run 100 issues, not including Zero Hour and the 1 million issue, between October 1994 and November 2002. He'd briefly hang out with the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, this Superboy tom- team with knockout against the female Furies formed a super team, the Ravers. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Superboy and the Ravers ran 19 issues, unbelievably, with us. Uh, right. Between September 1986 <laughs> and March 1998. Wow, all right. Co-founded Young Justice alongside Impulse and Robin, the Tim Drake Robin, that is. Eventually joined the reformed Teen Titans along with Impulse, Robin, and Wonder Girl. Takes the civilian identity of Connor Kent, who lives in Smallville with Ma and Pa Kent. He learned that the human who makes up uh, 50% of his DNA is Lex Luthor. So, of Ooh. course... He shaves his head and briefly turns evil, because that's what you do when you're a Luther. Mm-hmm. Uh, during Infinite Crisis, he's killed by Superboy Prime, but he returns from the dead after, during the revived Adventure Comics series. Khan's second ongoing, Superboy Volume 5, would run 11 issues from January to October 2011. Then, the new 52. Wow. <laughs> and Superboy Volume 6 ran for 35 issues from November 2011 to October 2014. He also wasn't the only Superboy running around in the New 52. I know it. Uh, it got crazy. They brought Mark Wolfman in to fix it. He couldn't do it. It was crazy. Nope. Uh, it appears He appears to have been away from continuity completely during Superman Reborn. Or was he? Dun, dun, dun. Could see his hand reaching up out of the water now, you know. <laughs> We're going to talk about our fourth Superman. We have Steel. Now, he moved home to Washington, D.C. following the reign of the Superman. He had an ongoing series that ran 52 issues between February of 1994 and July of 1998. It's worth mentioning that there was a feature film based on the character in 1997 starring Shaquille O'Neal in the title role. Had a $16 million budget and grossed $1.7 million at the box office. Hey, whoopsie. Whoopsie. Uh, it didn't work out too well. <laughs> now, after, back in the comics, after a stop in New Jersey, he returned back to Metropolis. He built Superman a new Fortress of Solitude. That was in Superman the Man of Steel number 100, May 2000 uh, cover date. He was killed during Our Worlds at War, but brought back... Basically immediately. Uh, He retired from the hero game, and his niece Natasha became the New Steel. Uh, He would take over as Superman's tech guy, a position previously held by Emil Hamilton. Uh, He returned to the Steel role during the 52 Weekly Maxi series, during which time he discovered the corpse of a Lex Luthor from an alternate Earth, which exonerated the real Lex from a lot of his recent evil doings. Uh, Then... The new 52, uh, where he's now dating Lana Lang, and I think he's like 20 years younger than he was. He, he's he definitely younger than he used to be, but yeah, he's still got Natasha as his niece, so yeah. it's in that then, uh, in, 30s, I would say, somewhere, early 30s, maybe. And then Rebirth, he uh, currently appears in Superwoman, right? Yeah, that's where Lana yeah. Lang is 
super powered and he's sort of her boyfriend and uh his niece is there and there's a whole bunch of characters that I don't know why we were talking about it this much. <laughs> Lex Luthor II. Lois Lane eventually discovered that Lex II had killed the trainer who would become Myriad and framed an innocent janitor for the crime. So that little one-off scene turned out to really bite him in the butt later on. Digging a bit deeper, she discovered that Lex faked his death and was actually posing as his son. Lex would enact a plan that would begin the fall of Metropolis just as his clone body was deteriorating to the point where he became a captive of it. During Underworld Unleashed, the demon Neron gave him his old body back, and Luther would go on to be a philanthropist, providing aid during the final night, purchasing the Daily Planet when it was on the brink, and revitalizing a post-no-man's-land Gotham City. Such acts led to him being elected the 43rd President of the United States, and a lot more would happen to Lex, but we will probably cover that at another more Lex Luthor specific time. I would imagine, yes. Yeah. Uh, we have the Matrix Supergirl. Now, Matrix first appeared back in Superman Volume 2, Number 16. She was created by John Byrne. She was initially a pocket universe stand-in for Lana Lang. In the pocket universe, Lana had died, and so her lover, pocket universe Lex Luthor, made the protoplasmic Matrix putty into her form. So she was Lana Lang and also Supergirl. Sure. Uh, during a Superman self-imposed exile, briefly, you know, followed that about a year later after he killed the uh, Phantom Zone uh, criminals, uh, Matrix, now known as May, played the part of Superman. Uh, believing herself to be unstable and therefore dangerous to be around, she would eventually flee to space herself. When she returned, she'd fall in with the new Lex Luthor. Uh, following the reign, uh, she would briefly join the new Titans. She would become merged with a dying woman named Linda Danvers, and her ongoing series, which was Supergirl Volume 4, would run 80 issues between September 1996 and May 2003. There was also a 1 million issue in there as well. Uh, she would sort of kind of go on to star in Peter David's Fallen Angel, but it gets pretty muddy That there. gets very tricky, yeah. And fr- <laughs> frankly, even her you know, assimilation with Danvers it is a little weird when it happens, yeah. but uh, you, you gotta run with it when you see it, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> now, finally, Finally, Jeb Friedman. Now, d- yes. Now, during a brief time following the return in which Lois and Clark had called off their engagement, Jeb struck again. However, in Superman, the Man of Steel number 55, April 1996, Jeb was shot and killed. Oh, I, we hardly knew ye, and I mean we that did. literally. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Now, those are all the characters, but we have a very philosophical question that we uh, we mentioned last week, but didn't uh, didn't go deep into it here. Yeah. Pa Kent had mentioned something. He said that uh, maybe Superman can't die. Maybe his death was simply him going through the mortal motions because he was raised by mortals with, you know, co- the concept of mortality. Well, you know, so, that made me think of when Byrne was doing Man of Steel. There's I don't remember what issue it is, but he's talking about how he, he has given up breathing. That remember mm-hmm. that it was sort of a habit that he had developed as thinking he was a human. They never really needed to do this was all to establish that at least for Burns' time, he he could fly through space uh, without you know a mask or whatever. Um, and you got to wonder how much of you know what he does is him just not knowing Krypton, you know Kryptonian sure. physiology. Uh, I think it's definitely an interesting question. Can he die? It is. Uh, you know, they, they, they show, there definitely are stories of him being super old and his hair going gray. Yeah. But never dying, the future stories. But what are your thoughts on that? 
Uh, yeah, like you're saying with uh, the way Byrne did it here. I mean, we've we've seen him many times say, you know, that he only eats because it's a habit. Right. You know, he doesn't need to eat. It's like, oh, now. But like when he was depowered, I mean, this is probably the absolute worst thing to cite. But during that uh, DCYOU thing where he was un, where he was depowered, yeah, and wearing the T-shirt, he was talking about having to eat and having to adjust to needing sustenance. Yeah. So uh, there was also the uh, the uh, dark side war where he was taken over <laughs> by one of them and he couldn't stop yep. eating pie. Eating he pie. Like, he oh, demanded pie. pie. I mean I mean part, part of part, part of the problem is here is that the continuity of Superman a little loosey goosey as we go around. Sure. You know, different writers have decided cuz also they had him wearing uh, masks in space sometimes, sometimes not. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he can go underwater and definitely sometimes he can't. Uh, but assuming that it's, you know, this post-crisis, kind of, post-crisis yeah. Superman, uh, and then and then it really it brings into question. So what is he? A Kryptonian yeah. can die on Krypton. All right, yeah. we, we know that. Um, but then, so when they get under the yellow sun, are we basically looking at God? Yeah, is this an immortal God? You know, this is it becomes like something of like Greek mythological legend all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't like the idea that he can't die because that just removes a lot of the right. lot of the drama from it. But uh, it is a uh, very and it was such a left field question where and it was never brought up again, which no. is a shame because I, I don't think anybody would want to tackle it because yeah you you just start stammering like we are now and it's like well where, where do you go from there? Well, I mean for the pur- for the purposes of DC Comics, they would like you to say yes, he can die. Otherwise, you'll, sure. you'll stop purchasing the comic. You know, but <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, as a character, it's definitely something to turn over in your mind. Uh, you know, I I think he'll always be presented as someone that death that could happen. Although there sure. there's plenty, you know, for Superman threatening his the people he loves or even his, his family, planet his is as is as bad or worse than threatening his life he's the first one as we showed in crisis and so many other stories mm-hmm. to i mean he's almost like adamant about sacrificing himself and almost near suicidal about like wanting to be the first yep. one out there uh and maybe part of that is because he knows he can't die maybe that's why he's so gung-ho about putting himself in the middle of things so uh I'd love to hear other people's thoughts Absolutely. on that. Uh, Absolutely. You know, see what they think about Superman. And, you know, this would be considering whatever era of Superman that you, that you want to look at, you know, if you want to talk about pre-crisis or post-crisis or post-post-crisis, post-crisis, mm-hmm. crisis, whatever you like. But uh, <laughs> New 52, New 74, New 112. <laughs> whatever you like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely. But we want to, before we wrap it up, we want to talk about our personal recollections of this uh, series, the death of Superman leading into the rebirth of Superman. Uh, for Chris, it was kind of your first foray into DC. It was. Uh, it was indeed. But for me, and this is something I've said on the show for a long time, that this happened, that in my my recollection was that when Superman 75 came out, I got that issue and I said, all right, goodbye. I'll, I won't be buying comics <laughs> for a while. <laughs> uh, I did. I know I, I did stick around for Nightfall and then No Man's Land. So I, I basically hung around for Batman, but I pretty much had walked away from, uh, in my mind, from, you know, all the other comics I've been reading, but it's not true. Having gone through this series again, I realized I did read these comics. I was interested enough to take it through Funeral for a Friend, at least those core issues. I definitely didn't go into the, uh, a a lot of the external, I might not have even read all of it, but I definitely read, uh, the four Reign of Superman issues up to, Mm -hmm. up to this, up to what we're talking about here. I think I read all this stuff, or most of it, you know, I remember Coast City, I remember, you know, I remember, like, it's the kind of thing where I remember, like, lying on my bed, you know, kind of, like, yep. visions of doing it, looking at the comic, and having the comic, and even getting them, uh, 
I was really interested in this. I really thought it was more than just for the gimmick of it. I was interested in what's going to happen to Superman. I, I was like, uh, you know, this is like a Mickey Mouse. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, how, how can you remove Superman from the equation? This is a 20th century American icon. Uh, mm-hmm. Why don't you, before I, you know, talk so much, my mouth falls <laughs> off. Tell them, tell them about your experience. Well, I've mentioned this on other shows, and uh, some people might be groaning now as I'll say it again. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, I was one of those uh, frontline uh, Newsday newspaper boys when this uh, story broke. So uh, for a brief second, I was the you know first guy in my neighborhood to know that it was going to happen. Wow. So uh, I d- drove around like the the world's geekiest Paul Revere, you know, saying <laughs> what was about to happen and, yeah. and going to my, you know, pushing off delivering the papers to go talk to my friends and say, hey, we'll check this out. And then uh, going to the comic store and bothering the Rob Leefield guy, uh, <laughs> thinking that he might have more information than us, which he didn't. Did not, no. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this was uh, my first foray into uh, DC. It was definitely my first, uh, and I might have owned some DC comics before, but I never really made a point of getting them. Yeah, um, and in succession, you know what I mean? Like of to, course. To follow yeah. along, right? And uh, like Mike Carlin said uh, in the quote earlier, uh, people thought Superman was corny. I was definitely of that mind. Oh, yeah. Uh, not only was Superman corny, but his his villains were just the worst. You know, it was, uh, and that's something that, uh, that I think either Dan or Jerry Ordway said uh, something about like a legion of guys in suits is how he referred to uh, Superman's uh, rogues gallery. And uh, that's how I saw it. And I had no reason to follow, you know, Superman fighting a little bald businessman yeah. when I could <laughs> when I could see uh, Spider-Man fighting Venom or the, the X-Men fighting Magneto. That's where I was going to go. But uh, this brought me in. Uh, I went every week because I couldn't afford the little pre <laughs> the little gimmick uh, pre-purchase of, uh, that my local guy had. So I was there every week. And uh, and it was uh, it was strange because uh, we talk about nowadays with a crossover appeal and mainstreaming, and uh, we talk about things like movies and TV shows. Like now, you know, the the watchword now is Justice League, and uh, and before that was Thor Ragnarok sure. a couple of weeks ago. Right. That we didn't have that in the '90s. The crossover was actually the comic book. Mm-hmm. Which we we wouldn't imagine today, unless Marvel spoils that someone's going to die in USA today, the day that a book's going to come out. Um, that's just we don't have crossover appeal as it re- as it pertains to the actual, you know, paper comic books. Right. And uh, back in 1992, we did. Um, you know, uh, family members asked me what a doomsday was or who a doomsday was. If I knew what was going on, it was just such a strange almost cultural uh feeling that 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 this kind of took over it was huge i mean i mean it's, yeah. it's bigger than a lot of the stuff we've seen happen in media lately it's bigger than any of it you know bigger than sure. the new 52s breaking it's bigger than captain america losing his shield or whatever the hell that was but all uh, that was yeah i mean like i say superman this is a bedrock 20th mm-hmm. century icon that now generations have grown up with you go around the world you go to like some of the remotest corners of the world you know, they don't know who, that who President Trump is or who even yeah. America is, but they know who Superman, Batman. They know the couple, Superman logo. A couple, yep. couple of core people there. They'll, they'll know these things. And it's like so 
pervasive. Uh, and and the crazy thing is, and I think a lot of people had the same feeling, is I really thought this might be permanent. It sounds insane to say now. I, <laughs> you know, it really does. I mean, you know, I really looked at it. The other thing is, like, uh, we talked about this a little bit last week when we looked at the new Superman, and we're like, all right, well, one of these could be the new Superman. So mm-hmm. let's look at it logically. You know, we know they're not going to want to change the look too much because, like I say, like, I wasn't a little kid, you weren't a very little kid, you were like no. 12 or 13 12, or something, yeah. and I was like 17, 18, so I, I'm pretty much an adult reading these and looking at it like, alright, well, they're not going to want to change the bed sheets and the mugs and whatever. Yeah, it's not going to be steel. So that's that, so that's <laughs> what I'm saying, and, and it's funny because nowadays it could totally, you know what I mean, to making making yep. a major hero a different <laughs> color or a different sex, that's that's par for the course, that's, that's everyday mm-hmm. stuff. Then I looked at it like logically, like that's not going to be him. No. Uh, but I really, I really did think this could be permanent while still having, you know, some reservations, obviously. You know, we, sure. we're not all brand new to the world. This wouldn't be the first time a character died and came back uh, <laughs> unceremoniously. But again, like Flash, Barry Allen seemed, seemed to be staying away. Gone. Yep. And uh, they had all these other options that seemed viable. You pointed out how, I, you know, Cyborg Superman, who I dismissed, oh, they could have easily just sprayed some fake skin on his face. Yeah. Uh, and the other guys, you know, Superboy could have been uh, aged. prematurely <laughs> aged and maybe Eradicator. Mm-hmm. And I definitely saw the, I, I think I, I think in my mind Eradicator was most likely, but also because he's, he's kind of a 90s version of Superman. Uh, yeah, he's a little bit more extreme. Yeah. Superman that will kill, and also the Superman without any boring human trappings. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, doesn't give a doesn't give a hang for Jimmy Lois, <laughs> uh, Jimmy Olsen, or Lois Lane. So I think that's where my mind went. But the point is that I believed it. Whereas now, uh, you know, if a superhero dies, I'm just like, when when do you bring him back? You know, and yeah, then, it's already solicited. And that, yeah, nowadays, it'll be like three months or two months mm-hmm. later. They, this this at least there was a year. Uh, mm-hmm. Quite a yeah. long time before he came back, um, so it 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 was uh, kind of interesting that the comeback, though, especially now going through it again this time, was probably the weakest part of the whole series. <laughs> uh, his yeah. rebirth, his coming out of that battle suit, it was like, yeah, we know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. It was uh, a letdown. Yeah. Even when the battle suit started moving, I, we all had an idea. Like, if the other four guys are already accounted for. Yeah. Who who could this? Who do you think this? It ain't Bibbo in there, so uh, <laughs> it doesn't smell funny in there, does it? Uh, but you know, it was it was sort of sort of a letdown. I can't deny it. It's so it's it sounds even words coming out of my mouth because I do like Superman, and uh, mm-hmm. I was a huge fan of John Byrne's six issues, The Man of Steel, as a as a rebirth, both because I was just a big fan of his artwork, but I like where they were. He was laying down some ground rules for, for finally, you know what I mean? This is what we're going to have. This is what we're going to be. I love that super, that bizarro issue will always stand out to me mm-hmm. uh, with, with where he shatters and they, so he has a bizarro, but they kind of have a different take on him. Uh, so I, I, I do like the character, but uh, it's the kind of guy that you do take for granted, you know? Sure. And I sure. think that's, that's where the character was when they came up with this death of Superman and it gave it a shot in the arm, but they didn't come back with, a reason, a compelling reason to read Superman. That was the biggest failing, I think, at the end. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. A lot came out of it that was cool, but the Superman was arguably the least cool thing that came out of it. <laughs> That's the problem, yeah, because I, I, 
I was thinking like, uh, it, you know, it's weird because at the same time, they, I consider this a success on several fronts here. You know, it did raise sales. It did raise awareness. Yeah. Um, it did freshen up the character a bit, even though what came after was lackluster yeah. and even the return was lackluster. Uh, it was because I, I didn't make it through this the first time. I stopped about halfway through the rain. It just got to be too much. It was a lot. Um, it was a lot to have, yeah. I mean, and, and if I'm being honest, even rereading it now, it was a little bit of a slog. Well, as, um, I, as I remember, like, I like at a certain point, I didn't want to read the Eradicator stuff anymore. I was just bored yeah, by him. I was just yeah. like, I, well, I don't want to read that. I don't want, and it's like you couldn't know, you couldn't pick and choose. You kind of had to be. No, in, you had to go route, through the know? whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 this was uh, 1993, so it was the 30th anniversary of the X-Men and the Avengers. So I'm sure my money was going elsewhere anyway. But uh, it was just uh, I, I couldn't muster the. To as I was, I wasn't really in all in on the DC universe at this point, yeah. And it was just like too much, it was too much, <laughs> and I, I dropped. Uh, I think maybe two months in, I probably dropped it. Um, but yeah, and like I said, even rereading it now, it was it, parts of it are kind of rough. Do you remember um, when you came back to it? Would that be in like the early 2000s when you did? Go I came, yeah, I came hard? back. I came back around the time that, uh, like, the, the Eddie Berganza era started, as uh-huh. un, unfashionable as that is to say now. Um, <laughs> this is when, like, Jeff Loeb was on a book. It was Jeff Loeb, Steven Siegel, Joe Kelly, and Joe Casey were the four Superman writers. Okay. And uh, they were the—or or it might have been Mark Schultz on uh, Man of Steel. But uh, those were—that was, like, the core. And uh, it was right as the triangle numbering was starting to go away. Uh-huh. And uh, that's kind of where all I went right. all so in. So that was even like late 90s, early 2000s. I was thinking like 2002, yeah. but I think it was even earlier than that. Might have been, uh, yeah, because yeah. I know it was before 9 11, because a lot of the, uh, like Superman's, the S in Superman's uh, on his chest changed to black around that time for right. a brief time. But uh, yeah, I was gone. I, I you know, I might have looked at Electric Blue, but uh, didn't really pay it much mind. It just seemed like, it just seemed. Like just stories that that didn't matter. It felt like the way I look at pre-crisis stories, or the way I used to look at pre-crisis stories, where they were interchangeable and of very little consequence. Mm-hmm. That's how I look at late '90s Superman. Which I think is where, it's, it's accurate for a lot of pre-crisis stories. You know, I mean, yeah. you're not you're not wrong about that. Uh, <laughs> there's no cumulative story going on in a lot of cases, no. even, even going into the Bronze Age, but. Uh, yeah, you know, that's the same thing, you know, after, so, you know, pretty much after this is when I did stop reading comics, except for the except for Batman, but I was aware enough to know that they did the Red and Blue Superman, yeah. uh, they had the Electric Superman, and like, and elsewhere in DC Universe, you had Kyle Rayner, who was a character I wasn't really looking to jump on with, you know what I mean, I wasn't looking to take on any new characters, Wally West was a character I never really, like, accepted, uh, mm-hmm. Being just, just literally, just being, you know, the the slightly older comic reader, you know, and uh, so it was not hard for me to stay away from Superman at this point. <laughs> but also, like what I was seeing, I saw nothing compelling going on. Where I was yeah. like, nothing like the death of Superman, which really, really dragged me in and actually got like a teenage me to spend money because this would have been a time, you know, after I was getting a a lot of comics. Um, in my mind, when I think back to this, even though I know they happened really about almost a year apart, or kind of like. The groundwork for Nightfall was being laid when Superman died. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in my mind, they really happened like kind of a year apart, the back breaking between 
you know, between Superman's death and the backbreaking was, I don't know, 10 months or something like that. Think so. uh, and I, but I always connect them in my mind as <laughs> being too. like the same, <laughs> the same thing done twice, even though they're not the same because Bruce Wayne doesn't die. He just dies a figurative death and, uh, yeah. but he gets a stand in and that stand in turns out to suck. And, you know, he's got to <laughs> come back and yank it back from him. And Doomsday is like, to me at the time, and it's funny to say, considering we just did a wrap up on Doomsday showing that he's still around today. But I thought we might never see Doomsday again, for real. Yeah, yeah. Like I was like, oh wow, that's it, and that's cool. They just made him once, and he's just like the one time only. How naive we can be, you know? It's just amazing. <laughs> we're, how, how, we're some of the most gullible folks. We really are the most adorable gullible <laughs> guys you ever saw. Uh, and I thought this was the same thing of Bane at the time. Like, oh, this is sure. a one time thing. No, but you can't get enough Bane now. You got the Bane Squad, the Bane League, whatever. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, it's just it's just funny. I could I connect in my mind. There's really nothing connecting them except for being sort of happening roughly around the same time. But they are really two different stories. And sure, uh, come up with. But it wasn't like they, the death of Superman came up, and then Warner Brothers told Denny O'Neill, who would have been the Batman editor at the time, "Now nah, you got to kill Batman." It just had kind of happened simultaneously. Although you know, in a way, in the '90s, comics were getting crueler, right? They were. So it was mm-hmm. kind of like. Where else? Can, what's the ultimate in cruelty? Where, where else can you go? Well, you know, disfigure people and murder them. That's pretty much as far as we're going to go. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I I'll say, and and I think we we proved it. Just talking about the one Green Lantern issue. This whole thing had a much bigger impact on Hal Jordan <laughs> and the Green Lantern Corps and the Green Lantern yeah. titles than Superman. I mean, huger. You know what I mean? It changed. Sure. Everything and everything that followed, like to this day, there's more of an impact from this story on the Green Lantern titles than on Superman. You know what I mean? Like, yep. uh, such know, an odd byproduct. I mean, now Doomsday and Superman are like bu- buddies almost. You know, you, mm-hmm. I, I think they see each other at the bus stop and they're, you know, <laughs> ask how the wife and kids are and stuff. But uh, Hal Jordan's still wrestling with Coast City and, you know, all that stuff. Coast City's rebuilt and he's still wrestling with Coast City. Uh, all that, you know, it's still like, still people feel funny about it. He got punched in the face by Batman. Uh, mm mm-hmm. Kyle, Kyle Rayner's exa- so many things happen, and we've yeah. talked about a lot of it uh, on past episodes. But uh, I would I would almost be inclined to say that this is a Green Lantern story. Ultimately, <laughs> I, I, I seriously, you know, like uh, it's like it's Superman, but by way of of what happened to Superman, it it had a much bigger impact on Green Lanterns, and mm-hmm. that's all I got to say about it, Chris. You, you you'd let us know what you got to say. <laughs> I, I I agree that this did have a huge effect on 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 Green Lantern. It's uh, I, I think maybe maybe they're equal in importance yeah. between the two. <laughs> um, I, another thing that uh, another part of this that is uh, successful to me um, is that it really added to Superman's lore and fleshed out his rogues gallery to include more than people in suits. Right. Um, the, the cyborg Superman. I, I love the design of him. Um, I, I'm not too keen on his gimmick of shifting consciousness because that feels like a cop out. But yeah, uh, but, but yeah. just the look is cool. Uh, <laughs> it kind and, of freaked uh, me out a little bit. And again, I was like 17. Yeah. I wasn't like yeah. a little kid, but I was like, oh man. And and he was being good in the beginning, you know. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, but so is it my is it my bigotry against skull faces, you know? Or that it might he, be. Uh, <laughs> turned out he was bad. he was bad anyway. So never trust a man with an exposed yes. jawbone. That's Occam's razor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it also it also added to the uh, to the cast of uh, you know the good characters you know Superboy Steel sure. it was a uh, it really fleshed out the family and 
made it and it didn't break like the burn rules it didn't break the uh you know superman is still the only kryptonian mm-hmm. but you know he there is a supergirl but she's not kryptonian there's a superboy he's a clone there's a you know steel who's not related at all there's a crypto but it's just a dog that didn't drown you know it's yeah. a it was eradicated but he's sort of like an energy he's a kryptonian artifact yeah, yeah. so yeah it's not really he wasn't really set by rocket or whatever yeah so it's just uh I, I really dig that they were able to to add so much without breaking some of the rules, it's, which uh, it's so easy to do now. That's very true. I mean, two of my favorite characters came out of this: Connell, and uh, who at first I hated, but I, I came to enjoy. You have to. Yeah. And Steel. I really, <laughs> yep. I love, I love Steel. I loved him in this. I love a lot of iterations after him. One of the more depressing. You like things. the movie, right? Uh, I have some love. I can say good <laughs> things about the movie, but you know, definitely not something you watch for its uh, great filming. Um, <laughs> It, uh, one of the things my you know we talked about Steels and Superwoman right now, and I review that title for Weird Science. And uh, one of my most disappointing things is that he just stands around and doesn't really do anything. You know, he gets yelled mm-hmm. at by Lana, and uh, they don't know what to do with him. And I'm like, this is such a good character. Just let him, yeah. Just let him be. Let him like be who he is, and and that's just like a supremely self-sacrificing good guy. When Lois says he has Superman's soul. That's so such a good way to put it because he's like all of the elements of Superman without being yep. indestructible. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But always, totally. always the first in the fray, always there to like stop the building from falling on the kitten or whatever. Uh, I, I wish, I wish there was a better use for him currently in comics, but there are a lot of for great, sure. a lot of great uses for him, and uh, he became one of my big favorites. And Superboy just became kind of a fun goof and. I, on Young Justice, he was great. You know, by the time he mm-hmm. got to that point where he was more of a fleshed-out, like, adultish character, it was, yep. it was a lot more interesting. So, uh, a lot of good came out of this. Mm-hmm. But again, absolutely, S- Superman, arguably being the least. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was just, it was just back, and it was another another day at the office. That's right. There we are back. Oh, and Clark's back too. Everything is tickety boo, folks. Yep, plus is... Clark, plus long hair. Back to the back to the way we want to be. So, and he had a ponytail sometimes, which mm-hmm. was okay in the '90s, folks. That was okay yes. back then. Don't forget, we had uh, what was that pocket full of kryptonite? The Spin Doctors. Yes. Any era that could support that, anything goes with the hairstyles. But and the, uh, and the Jimmy Olsen Blues was another song of that. That's what they were. They actually were big uh, <laughs> Superman fans. Uh, but yeah, so I had a good time with this. So though, yeah. going back into it and really picking it apart this much, besides having the amazing recollection that I'd read it all once before, because <laughs> uh, I actually don't have all these uh, issues. I don't know if you mentioned <laughs> here. I, I have the trade. I have an older uh, omnibus that actually is less complete than the current yeah. trades, and I did get the I did get them as we go through the run. I mean, I got the newer trades, but it's not like I had these issues sitting around. I've been rereading them, rereading them. I I just bought them at the time, or at least some of them at the time, and read them, and probably you know chucked them or whatever, let them fall to the floor. So uh, that was really cool for me was to. Uh, kind of go back and say, oh, wait, I did like comics for like another year longer than I thought I did. You stuck around, <laughs> I did. Uh, but of course, we want to know what you think, and especially about that question, uh, yes. do you think Superman can die? Is Superman immortal, or is he just going through the motions? And mm. uh, one place you can tell us what you think about that is over at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. We're on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. 
And we have weekly writings over at WeirdScienceDCComics.com Where I do review Superwoman, among other books And of course, every week I tell you to check this website every day Chris is on InfiniteEarth.com That's Chris's personal blog where he reviews a new DC comic Every single day And boy, you have been ping-ponging lately Oh, you know, cool. you were yes. just—you got my head spinning. You know, you got Legion <laughs> lost up there. I see a Bronze Age action car. I, you know, it's—it's—it's it's, it's, anything goes, folks. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of times though. It does act as a corollary to what we're doing here. So it's mm-hmm. if you're enjoying this podcast and you haven't read that website, it's—it's it's worth it to put your eyes over there. You'll probably find uh, more than one article of, related to what we're talking about here. And uh, sure. if, if you're reading that website and not listening to the podcast, then you can't hear what I'm telling you right now, so it doesn't matter. No, they can't hear it. <laughs> uh, another blog that you should uh, make sure to check out is our uh, our shared uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where uh, we upload show notes. And that's yeah. <laughs> it's about it. Have you, been putting, have you been putting scripts up there? I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't talk about this on the, uh, on the broadcast, but that's, that's one thing we could end up doing. Oh, we uh, could. Put some of these up there. Just, I've always wanted, you know, if anyone is interested in our weird process, process. (laughs) it's funny, we've developed it over time, you know. Uh, This whole thing, it it began with you and I saying, let's do something simple. We don't have to do a lot of work for our (laughs) planet, right? It was, we were going to open a comic and just read it. And we, the first issue, we found out we couldn't do that. So, that's right. Uh, (laughs) Over time, we found we've we've come to a different way that we do things. And uh, if anyone's interested to see that, let us know. We're really happy to share something. Maybe put it over there at uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. But uh, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? I think that'll do us. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill supoidly. Did you ride your helm? Doing everything I can. Try and make the answers more